0: Lab Talk with Laura, listen I implore ya,
1: won't never bore ya, Lab
2: Talk with Laura, always more
1: in store ya,
2: Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. I'm here today joined by a few guests from UMass Amherst. Uh, first, we have Nigel Golden, who is a doctoral student in the Environmental Conservation Department at UMass Amherst. He is a Northeast Climate Science Center graduate fellow, an NSF Graduate Research Fellowship uh, fellow, and a Natural Geographic Explorer, or is it just Nat Geo?
3: Uh, you could say Nat Geo Explorer. Nat Geo Explorer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, he's originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Um, He did his undergrad at UW-Stevens Point and studied biology and wildlife ecology. Um, And currently, he is studying the changing Arctic and its impact on conservation in wild places. Thank you for joining us, Nigel.
3: I'm glad to be here.
2: Cool. Um, Next up, we have Ruthie Halberstadt. Did I say that right, Ruthie? Halberstadt. Halberstadt. She is a doctoral candidate in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst. Uh, She got her bachelor's and master's in earth science at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and she's originally from Durham, North Carolina. She studies ice sheets, climate, and sea level. Thank you for joining us, Ruthie.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Um, And last, uh, my guest co-host for today is Taylor Ortiz, who is a local comic uh, studying comedy at Hampshire College. Uh, He's originally from Houston, Texas. And you can catch his sketch comedy TV show Fever Dream on their YouTube page, Felt Waffle. Thanks for joining us, Taylor.
3: I'm glad to be here.
2: <laughs> okay, so. Um, first up, uh, Nigel, could you maybe just tell us about the research that you do?
3: Sure. Um, as you referred to earlier, I am studying the changes in the Arctic and their impact on conservation and wild spaces. Uh, The species that I study is Arctic ground squirrels, and where I study them at is Denali National Park in Alaska. Um, These two things are important. Um, So uh, the importance of the work gets pretty significant. Um, Denali is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a biosphere reserve in the interior of Alaska. Uh, And so amongst a cohort of nations, just not the United States itself, um, they've determined that it has universal value. Um, And as a national park, um, it is held as a cornerstone in conservation because it holds large, un- un- uninterrupted tracts of land, uh, which are important for many mammal spe- animal species in general. Um, it's actually about the size of Maine, if you know people want to know what the park was like. So it's a pretty big park. Um, and Arctic ground squirrels are important. Um, they're considered a keystone species because you know they are generally on everybody's dinner tray. And Denali National Park. So grizzly bears, wolves, golden eagles, foxes, um, they're kind of every everything in there almost kind of relies on them um, as a food item. And so you kind of think of it as for humans, you know imagine if our most stable crops were suddenly uh, not available. Uh, so I'm looking at how climate change is impacting not only the place that they live in but I'm also looking at how climate change is going to affect their persistence um, in that park.
1: When you say value, do you mean to like science
3: or like the world? Like, like what value does it have? Just like chilling there. So, the Nali National is a national park. So it's um, maintained by the National Park Service, which is a federal agency. Um, and so they're federally mandated with preserving unimpaired natural and cultural resources for our current generation, that would be us, and for future generations, for those of us who decide to have kids. Um, and so they're, because they are federally mandated um, to preserve this place, um, there is a lot of value to be held there, um, particularly which is why it's also labeled a biosphere reserve. Uh, so out of all of you know, the wild places that are left intact on Earth, this is one of the largest places on the planet that has the lowest amount of impact from human presence.
2: So you brought up the predators that all feed on the ground squirrels. Yes. So first of all, have you gotten attached to any ground squirrels?
3: I think I'm attached to all of them in general. Okay. Yeah.
2: Like that's a community that you really are connecting with.
3: I really do connect with the ground squirrels. <laughs> did you <laughs> study so them? Cute.
2: When did you start studying them?
3: Uh, so as a undergrad, I did two research expeditions to Northeast Siberia. Um, and while I was there, I studied Arctic ground squirrels there as well. And it kind of continued over into my dissertation work here at UMass.
2: Cool, what do, what do, Arctic, do Arctic ground squirrels look different than the squirrels we see around campus, for example?
3: Yeah, so the squirrels you see around campus, those are tree squirrels, uh, really long tails, you know, very slim profile. Um, And they don't actually hibernate during the winter. They enter more of, you know, just an inactive state, but they still are awake. They're able to move around. And you still actually see them leaving, you know, their trees and coming down to try to find the food that they cached. Arctic ground squirrels are more akin to um, black-tailed prairie dogs, which we have in, you know, really central parts of the United States. Uh, So they live in the ground. Um, Their homes are in the ground. They dig these huge colonies. And compared to the tree squirrels that we have here in the Northeast, they are hibernating seven to eight months out of the year. And so for, you know, most of the year, they're inactive, underneath the ground. Um, Bodies are below zero, uh, below freezing. And so actually, out of all of the recorded body temperatures for animals that hibernate, they actually have been recorded to have the lowest body temperature.
2: Wow. So they just they just chill at zero. What did you say zero?
3: Below freezing point. Below freezing? Yeah.
2: They just chill below freezing for seven to eight months of the year?
3: Exactly.
1: Wow. Are, are they scared of like, people? Because you were talking about how like there's a very minimal impact. Do they like know to run away or do they think like, oh shoot, this guy might have some like Cheese its like, What's their, what's their like, reaction to seeing humans?
3: Yeah, so a standard procedure um, in a national park and in many places that you're not supposed to feed wildlife. Um, and so at the visitor centers, um, there are Arctic ground squirrels there. Um, actually, um, human structures are really good for ground squirrels because it provides them a good starting point for them to burrow into the ground. And is typically not surrounded by grizzlies, bears, and golden eagles. Um, so there is some interaction between humans and ground squirrels. And the ground squirrels that are closest to the human spaces are more likely to interact with people. But when I'm in the wild, which you know, where I am doing my field work at, you know, the Arctic ground squirrels, um, they exhibit this type of behavior where um, one is, you know, like this, like being this vigilant guy or girl or gal, and what they do is when they detect a predator, and I would be considered a predator, they emit an alarm call, and so all of the other ground squirrels that are in that colony, you know, like they'll, they'll stop whatever they're doing, like they'll, prop up and like they're looking around they're seeing you know who what is the reason for this alarm call and then they'll start emitting the alarm call as well and so that's kind of the engagement that I have with the ground squirrels that aren't around people
2: can you um make like what does the alarm call sound like (laughs) (laughs) are you able to do it (laughs) for those of us who haven't had the pleasure of hearing it firsthand
1: let me get back to
2: you okay. Sure. <laughs> That's okay. you don't have to do that.
1: came <laughs> in here's a man of science <laughs> have to do calls
3: It's like a it's like a squeak with a twill okay. it's squeak That doesn't do it any justice, but just imagine that like these high mountainous areas and so it's, you know it's bouncing all over the place:
2: so uh, do they, they all start doing it at once too like you can hear multiple, mo- or is it just like one and then they all like go back underground
3: so one will make the initial call and then others in the colony or in surrounding communities they'll also emit the alarm call as well okay yeah it's a type of vigilance behavior where everybody kind of um, has some type of positive benefit from it the downside is that for the one that makes the alarm call you know they're kind of giving away their position but at the same time they're letting that individual know, whether it be me or another animal, like, hey, I see you, I know you're there, and you can try to catch me, but you're not gonna catch me.
2: So what kind of things are you looking at when you go out in the field?
3: Right, so one way um, we look at how a species, um, the health of a species is by studying their populations. And one way of doing that is by trying to count how many is in that population, how are they distributed, and what, what factors in their envirom- environment or within their population is like kind of impacting the health of that population. And so one way of doing that is to count all of the individuals within that population, which is just kind of impossible. Um, and that would be called a census. One, Denali National Park is just way too huge. Okay. Um, I can't backpack the state of Maine in wilderness during the summer. Um, and it's also just kind of you know impractical to expect to count all of the individuals within that population. The same goes for plants. Uh, so one way we get around this is by coming up with the estimate of the density of that population, the density or the abundance. Um, and so I use a distance-based sampling technique. Um, essentially, I am walking straight lines in the national park. Um, in specific habitats, in a replicated number of habitats, and I'm counting the amount of individuals that I see. And essentially what it boils down to, using that information, I can extrapolate or project out to the entire Denali National Park and come up with an estimate for how many Arctic ground squirrels there are, how are they distributed, and what are some of the, what are some of the drivers that is affecting that distribution and health of that population.
2: Is there a, a basis, like do other people have previous records of this for you to compare what the measurements you're taking and are you seeing any kind of trends?
3: So one of um, the really cool aspects of this project is that, well, unfortunately, you know, there's not a long-term data set for their population um, in this part of Alaska, at least. Um, And also more so to the point, the type of method that I'm using, to my knowledge, um, is the first being used on this species. Uh, so I can't make any comparisons to past historical work. Um, so all of the knowledge, the data that is coming out of this project is coming from the work that I am doing. Um, and so far what I would have expected for Denali is I would have expected a lot of ground squirrels. Um, Denali, which is in the interior of Alaska, is right in the Alaskan range. So there's plenty of mountainous areas which um, ground squirrels are heavily associated with. Um, and what I found, at least using this method so far, and you know, this, we have to collect multiple summers of data in order to, you know, be for sure in our estimation of mm-hmm. how many ground squirrels there are. But I'm not seeing a lot of ground squirrels for what I would have expected. Oh.
1: Do you think maybe there's just like one like really good grizzly bear just getting all of them?
3: <laughs> I've seen a really good grizzly bear go through a lot of effort to get one, so <laughs> it's, it's possible.
2: <laughs> you watch that happen. You watch a grizzly bear. I watched chase it happen,
3: and I was rooting for the squirrel, but the squirrel didn't get away. So actually, it's it was a sow, which is, um, it's a female grizzly bear with her two cubs, and you know. The ground squirrels they're you know a couple of feet below the ground in their burrow and you know grizzly bears they're they're just powerful animals and like you could see her just like uprooting and like digging up all of this soil and you see the hip the ground you could hear the ground squirrel you know making its alarm call from the burrow and so, you know, the mother... <laughs> Was it,
2: like, a really intense alarm call? You're, like, alarm call, like, squared, <laughs> like, grizzly bear incoming, like, pounding in and around. Okay, sorry. It's the type
3: it of up. response you expect if, like, somebody jumped on your back without you expecting it. You know, it's just, like, a scream. Yeah. They're, like, that's how I interpret it, at least. And I'm, like, this ground squirrel is, like, screaming for his life, which, it, it's kind of sad. But, you know, that's how nature works. Um... And you could see just like all of this effort she's putting in. You know, she just has really huge shoulders. So she's just really putting in work to, you know, removing all of this dirt. And the ground squirrel manages to get out of the hole and run away from the mother. But one of the cubs actually catches it as it's running away from the mother. Oh, family teamwork. Family teamwork. Did
1: did you Snapchat that? (laughs) I do have a
3: video of it.
1: You should, you'd be Instagram famous if just went out there. Just got like, today on Nigel's Instagram, bear versus squirrel part two.
3: (laughs) The reckoning. The reckoning. Reckoning.
2: I didn't see that coming that the bear cub would be on the side. (laughs) Ready to catch.
3: You can kind of tell they were kind of also annoying the mom as well because, you know, like their head is like right where she's trying to dig.
2: Oh, really? And like
3: eventually, like they just like (laughs) kind of get bored. And so like they sit on the sidelines, not even actually paying attention to what she's doing. And so this girl could have made it, but it just like ran right into the view of one of the cubs.
2: And they're basically just like, Mom, what's for dinner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's like, ground squirrel. We're <laughs> ground working squirrel. on it.
3: They call them uh, squirrel burritos. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so but that, was that the closest you've been to a grizzly bear when you saw it hunt down that squirrel?
3: No, unfortunately. Uh, the closest I've been to a grizzly bear is probably, I would say, between 20 and 40 feet. And we were both... On the opposite side of these bushes, so we both didn't know that we were there, and it was another instance where it was a sow with a sow with two cubs, which is not the ideal situation because they're pretty protective of their cubs, mm-hmm. um, and so what ended up happening is is that there was a bus, and they're like just waving at us out the window, me and the field tech that accompanied me throughout the summer, and it's like bear, bear, bear. <laughs> And I don't even, like, try to look around. I just run and get on the bus, and as soon as we get on the bus, we're, like, looking over the window over the row of bushes, and there's the salad with our two cups. Oh, wow. Okay. But I'm alive to tell that story.
2: Yeah. So did you um, – you said you also did field work in Siberia? Yes. Can you – what was that like? How long were you out there?
3: So I was out there with the program, uh, the Polaris Project, which is a research for uh, a research experience for undergraduates it's an RU. Uh, maintained out of Woodso by the Woodso Research Center, um, and so what they do is they take undergraduate students to the Arctic and they expose them to uh, doing Arctic research. And so um, while I was there, um, part of the work that's folding over into my dissertation work is uh, one of the main concerns um, with the Arctic is their influence on our global climate system. And so when you think about climate change, really we're just talking about our atmosphere, which we typically think of as air, but which is really you know just a composition of gases. And what's really unique about the Arctic is that the type of gases that are in the atmosphere um, is also locked in the soil, so carbon dioxide. And the type of gases that are locked in Arctic soil is about 50% more than what's in the atmosphere. And when I say locked, it's under ice, it's frozen. And so one of the concerns with climate change in the Arctic is that you know this permafrost is melting. And so the concern is that a lot of the carbon that are in these grounds will then be able to intermix with the atmosphere, um, making our climate change dilemma that much more of a scarier prospect. And so while I was there, one way to look at this is how, how what are the physical determinants of how carbon dioxide is going to leave out of the soil? And so ground squirrels, they live in the ground, and in this process, they're mixing the bottom layer with the top layer, they're Mm. fertilizing the soil. So what they're really doing is creating these ideal conditions for bacteria to go in and interact with, you know, these carbons and release them to the atmosphere. Wait, so
2: the the squirrels are making it worse?
1: (laughs) Is that basically...
3: (laughs) We need to release
1: some grizzlies out there.
3: (laughs) So, I mean... By all means, you know, humans are the number one <laughs> <laughs> contributors to gases that are being released into the atmosphere. And so what we're, what I'm doing for Arctic ground squirrels is looking at how are they influencing the physical properties of the soil um, and what does that mean for the release of carbon dioxide. And so I unfortunately don't have a definitive answer for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but one other way to look at this are beavers, you know, beavers in terms of like species are are equivalent in terms of like how they can impact the natural environment. You know, mm-hmm. like there's like a lot of flooding, they, you know, create and build these like huge dams. And so, you know, they're kind of doing the opposite in terms of what Arctic ground squirrels are doing. So instead of directly impacting the soil through um, improving conditions for uh, carbon dioxide to flow out. Um, beavers what they're doing instead flooding these environments and so what you have is instead of carbon dioxide being released you have methane being released and methane um you know correct me if i'm wrong is about four times a stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide and so you know that's that's also one way to look at how animals are influencing how carbon dioxide is going to be released into the atmosphere as well
1: i remember um not too long ago there was some Republican politician uh, came out and was like, this is ridiculous, we gotta stop worrying about human's effect, it's cows uh, farting (laughs) in the fields, all the methane that they're producing, we gotta get rid of all these cows.
3: So, cows are certainly, um, our agricultural practices um, is certainly one of um, a major contributor to greenhouse gases that we're putting into the atmosphere. And so he's correct in identifying it as a source of, you know, these greenhouse gases. Um, But will entirely removing cows, is that the solution? Probably not. Um, But he's definitely correct in identifying it as a source of major greenhouse gases.
2: So we really have like several new villains in the climate change issue. (laughs) Though it's like not just humans, although cows are domesticated. So it's kind of our fault, too.
3: The amount of cows that are out in the landscape is um, certainly—it's certainly by our own hands in terms of you know our agricultural practices.
2: Yeah, those squirrels though. Yeah, (laughs) squirrels. The squirrels are the new villain. (laughs) Like I think we can pretty much pin it on them. Like if something bad happens, get
1: rid of them. Get rid of beavers. Buy a Tesla. You're good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, you said you went to Siberia as part of an REU program. That's from that's a National Science Foundation program. Correct. Um got a lot of acronyms here, NSFRE program. That's the research experience for undergrads. I also did that, it's a really great program that helps expose undergrads to what it's really like to do research. Um, Kind of maybe like going in that vein, can you talk about how you ended up in the the field that you did?
3: Yeah, so as a undergrad, my research was focused on infectious diseases. And I knew going into grad school that I did want a climate change component into whatever thesis or dissertation work that I did because certainly climate change is also influencing um, how you know different animals and people are exposed to diseases, the conditions that you know either help diseases you know propagate more or reduce them more. Um, and I, in the act of you know expanding my boundaries, I went on the initial trip to Northeast Siberia, and the nine-hour flight. From New York to Moscow, and then the six-hour flight from Moscow to Yakutsk, and then the two to three-hour flight from Yakutsk to Chersky. And in that process, you know, I was just enamored by like these huge, barren landscapes. You know, no people were there, and you know, there's a lot of water in Northeast Siberia, um, but it's just really beautiful and like really t- impacted me in a way um, that I didn't quite expect. I had never had that experience before. And also part of that experience was for the REU is that as a student, you know, you are at the helm of your research. So you're designing the research project, you're coming up with the questions and kind of being the lead on my own project, coming up with questions and then give, getting feedback from the PIs who were on the trip were really formative in terms of my experiences as being a scientist. And all of that happened while I was in the Arctic, and so I just fell in love with it, and I took it with me to graduate school.
1: Nice. I can't imagine taking a 17-hour plane ride and being like, this is my
2: <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> I love Coach. Um, so you started out in infectious diseases,
3: did you say? I started out in infectious diseases. Okay,
2: did you always know you wanted to study science?
3: I always knew as a kid that I wanted to at least study animals. Um, As a kid I actually like didn't get out to like our national parks or even our state parks a lot. Um, Most of you know what I seen came in through TV so like National Geographic, Animal Planet, you know Jeff Corrin experience. Um, So all of my formative experiences with science came through television and then when I got to college I got to you know, immerse myself in those experiences that will eventually lead up to where I am now. Um, but, you know, I, I always imagined like putting myself in those wild spaces, those wild places. And, you know, I've gotten here and, you know, it feels really great.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to say before we maybe move on and talk to Ruthie?
3: I mean, I'm also lucky enough um, that I can include my, my activism as a graduate student here on campus as well. So, you know, I've been involved with the um, Make It Safe campaign that's here on campus. Um, I'm working with three other students now at the moment um, for our own lecture series. Uh, We're calling it BRIDGE. BRIDGE stands for Broadening Relationships, Impacts, Discussions, in Geosciences and Environmental Conservation. Um, and we've gotten the support from the dean of our college, Cacho of Natural Science. We've gotten the support of uh, the chairs of each of our departments. So that's both the geoscience and environmental conservation. And part of our goals is to provide opportunities for early career scientists from underrepresented backgrounds to share their research and another broader aspect of their work as a scientist. Um, and so this is we're uh, rolling out this lecture series this semester, and I'm hoping for really great things. Um, So, that's also part of my time as a graduate student. Okay,
2: so up next we're going to be talking to Ruthie Halversett, who is a doctoral candidate in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst. Uh, How's it going, Ruthie?
0: All right. So, uh,
2: (laughs) thanks for joining us. Um, So, do you want to just talk first um, about the research you do? Just tell us what what you do.
0: So, I study ice sheets in the past and in the future, um, and I use numerical modeling to Um, reproduce their behavior, but I also go and do like glacial geology and so then I try, I I tie together those geologic data with the models to try to make the models most accurate and robust because if you're gonna build some buildings on a coast based on future sea level projections you're gonna need to have the best kind of ice sheet model. So everything is really interconnected um, in terms of you know, what happened in the Miocene 15 million years ago, and what kind of building you want to build in Boston over the next 30 years. I mean, this it, it, it's it's all very tied together, which is an exciting place to be in science today. Um, so yeah, so I've gotten to go to Antarctica, which has been a really awesome experience, twice. Um, and one time, I was on a boat for two months, and I was uh, mapping the seafloor. And from those features, I can reproduce what happened to the ice sheet throughout the last glacial maximum. So I was looking at a time period about mm, like 12 to 8,000 years ago, and so I can basically map what happened to that ice margin throughout that time. And uh, the second time I got to go to Antarctica, I was camping, which. <laughs> um, was quite an experience and I know you're all dying to know how I went to the bathroom in the field (laughs) because that is everyone's first question and um because the Antarctic is such a wild place um it's very well well it's very well protected there's an Antarctic treaty that dictates how all human activity has to go in Antarctica and um and it's very strict on this leave no trace so yes all of our our poop buckets are helicoptered in and out And you're not allowed to pee on the continent. If you go on a hike, you have to take a a Nalgene water bottle, and then you pee in that, and then you empty it into the buckets, and then that gets helicoptered away as well. Um, So yeah, (laughs) I wanted to make sure I. That's like leave no
2: trace, extra. Yeah, Yeah, but like if, if
1: they were like okay so anytime you need to poop we're gonna just uh scramble some apaches for you i'd be like vip status
0: (laughs) well what we did in the field is we like constructed so there there are like there were these like little hills and so we decided that the toilet area was going to be behind some of these little hills and then um, we made like little ice blocks around it so there was like kind of like a little area and then there was a flag you put up so if you were using the bathroom you put the flag up so no one would walk over the hillock and see you using the restroom Um, And they also have these little like toilet seats that you take when you're assembling all your gear. You take like little toilet seat and then you just like attach the toilet seat over the bucket and so it is quite, quite luxurious.
2: Wow, that's I feel like if you like train to be a helicopter pilot and then you're just <laughs> to shuttle like, human excrement off of like yeah. That would be kind of a drag maybe. I don't know. But, but also like how fun. I guess fun it's would all it frozen, be? so it's not
1: like how fun would it be to like <laughs> drop a hook in like the old crane game, just like try to like <laughs> like move the helicopter to like get the bucket.
0: Well we also had an uh, episode where a helicopter dropped all of our gear which was really unfortunate because it's so windy. This is kind of cool, it's so windy in Antarctica um, because there are these, these like gravity-driven winds that come over the ice sheet, but there's no friction to stop them, right? There aren't any mm-hmm. trees. So it's just like this wind that's moving over a really, really smooth surface. So it ends up going really fast. So it's super windy. So anyway, so this helicopter was coming with our gear to like drop it at the, the site and then we were gonna come over in the next helicopter. And it's got all, all our gear in this sling underneath the helicopter. And apparently it got really windy and I don't know there I didn't know there was like a big red button that you could press on a helicopter, but the pilot pressed the big red button and all the entire sling got was disconnected. And because he was like, this thing is like moving around unsafely. Mm. Anyway, so all of our stuff broke. And so then we had to go back and like re-equip. Oh, and the worst part is that we had a bunch of beer that we were bringing. And and for some reason, the only thing that survived, like the tents were broken. The food supplies were broken. But this beer was not broken. And, And they happened to land near... Um, a camp like another temporary field site and so they radioed in and they were like oh yeah we like look through this stuff it's all broken except for the beer and we're like great we'll pick it up and we never saw that beer again
3: (laughs) because it's a hot commodity i would imagine it's in a supply
0: yeah yeah (laughs) anyway (laughs) um right so i study. i study sea level rise (laughs) and um And the time that we were uh, camping in the field, we were actually collecting a permafrost core in this area where there is not a lot of ice cover. It's called the Dry Valleys because it's originally named Dry Valleys because there's not ice there, but the dirt has been frozen for about 14 million years. And we were studying the time period right before it was permanently frozen in um, the mid-Miocene, which is the last time that CO2 levels were above about 400 ppm. And for reference, the current... CO2 levels are above 400 ppm. And so the last time this region um, was not like permanently frozen was a time that's like 14 million years ago and um, similar to (laughs) what we're headed into. So, I mean, we have, we really have no idea. I mean, we talk a lot about climate change and talking heads and politicians talk about things they don't know about and scientists talk in ways and nobody understands. But I mean the bottom line is we are headed into a time period where we have no idea what's going to happen. It's completely unprecedented and, um, and it's kind of scary. Like I'm, th- you know, I'm thinking about this time period 14 million years ago, the last time we've seen similar conditions as today. And we just we just don't know what's going to happen. But it's a great field to be a scientist in because there's a lot of questions.
3: So how do we know what happened 14 million years ago?
0: Well, we don't know what happened globally. We know what happened at teeny little pinpoints, such as this core that we're taking. We can reconstruct temperature. Um, actually, we can. some of the ways that we can do that is we can identify fossils of bugs. And then we can say, okay, this fossil of bug is really similar to this bug that lives today at a certain temperature range, or leaf, like so there are, there were actually vascular plants living in the mid Miocene at this time where it was about we think CO2 is about 400 ppm, um, and so we can say, okay, this plant looks like this leaf fossil. So I was actually digging up fossil. Oh my gosh! And I found this like little knob, this little stick in this like fossil lake, and it wasn't even it wasn't f- when I say fossil, I mean it was an imprint because it wasn't fossilized; it's just been frozen. So it was like actual wood. It hasn't been replaced by minerals. It's like actual wood that's fourteen million years ago. That was that was like crazy. Um, but yeah, so we use we, we use bugs and leaves and use modern analogs for ecology to know temperatures. But that's a that's a postage stamp. And then the challenge is finding other little postage stamps across the globe to try to recreate conditions.
1: So you said. Um that this is the first time in 14 million years since we've had this and we have no clue what's going to happen. So isn't there a chance it's just going to be great?
0: I mean, it'll be great for some people. What if this makes America
1: great (laughs) again? What if the 440 (laughs) PPMs is what it took?
0: So climate change is a, well, okay, first of all, we do have some idea. We just don't have a very good idea in what people would like to, we want like, like, a, a politician or, or a citizen will, will want a scientist to say like, this is exactly what's going to happen in 10 years, right? Like, we can't do that. But we do have some sort of ideas from these little postage stamps. Um, so that that, wasn't, that was a bit of an exaggeration. The other thing is, so so yeah, so climate change is like this big complex thing. And the thing that I know most about is sea level. Um, and the thing that Nigel probably knows about is, is ecology and, and air temperatures. And those are Two completely different study areas. Mm-hmm. So we're recording <laughs> from Massachusetts now, and I've done a project <laughs> in Boston about predicting sea level rise in Boston over the next hundred years under different greenhouse gas scenarios. Right. So what what will happen if the current levels of emissions stay exactly the same, which is not going to happen? Um, what will happen if we continue doing business as usual? And then there's some like in betweens, like what will happen if we c- like kind of commit to this but then like ghost on it later? Um, and so then you can, you can actually translate those um, greenhouse gas scenarios using these models that I work on of ice sheet contributions, and then you distribute that sea level contribution from the ice mass loss along global coastlines, and you say, okay, what's gonna happen in Boston? Um, and so you can actually predict where those, um, those flooding areas are gonna happen, and one thing I've worked on is um, looking at the areas that will be inundated, not only like and I say inundated, I mean like actually underwater. There'll be areas that will be actually underwater, but most significantly in the next 100 years, there's going to be a floodplain expansion, right? So when you have regular floods, what's going to get what's gonna get flooded when there are these storms. And so I've been looking at how that interacts with demographics like people who don't have cars, like especially in Boston, people who are elderly and may not be able to be evacuated, people who are already under financial strain, people who are minorities or don't speak English and can't read like evacuation warnings. So there's this really huge complex problem we have ahead of us.
3: So you spend a lot of time comparing uh, the historical amount of greenhouse gases with what we currently have in the atmosphere. Uh, you know, taking off your academic hat for a second, you know, do you do you think about or do you have an idea of you know what we can do now in terms of like reducing what we're putting in an atmosphere?
0: The biggest thing that we can do is pretend is not pretend that climate change is a political issue because it's been turned into this. Um, this thing that that people win and lose elections based on which has nothing to do with climate change right i mean i think we need to turn it back into a science issue and once it's a science issue then we separate that from the political side and let the politicians deal with it but now if you're in a different party all of a sudden you have an opinion on climate change like that's not that's slowing down all of the mitigation efforts and that is like It's just, we've come to a complete halt on trying to mitigate our emissions because of this political game. And I think probably the most useful thing we can all do is bring climate change back to science and then let the politicians deal with the mitigation part rather than letting the politicians into the science and then letting the scientists into the mitigation.
1: What would you say to somebody who is a climate changer, like my mom, I, like, I, I had a conversation with her uh, like around a year ago um, and we were talking about climate change and she was like, well, you know, there's a lot of scientists who don't agree with climate change. There's a lot. And what the mainstream media is saying is that it's 99%, but it's not 99%. And there's a lot of science out there that's saying that it's not true that climate change is happening. So what would you say in like a layman's term to those people that, that feel that way? Uh,
0: yeah, well, so that particular assertion I think has everything to do with how climate change is portrayed in the media whereas if we were on another kind of radio station and maybe I was somebody who was you know putting on my science communication hat and saying like let me tell you about climate change and then you know Laura as the host would be like okay well if we have someone who's going to talk to us about climate change we have to have someone who's going to talk to us about how climate change isn't real and so then you're setting up a 50-50 boundary between like a scientist who studies climate change and someone who's just going to start doing, you know, data cherry picking and all of those things that give you attention. <laughs> and so that that portrayal makes people who don't study climate change feel that there's not a 99% scientific consensus about climate change. So, so that is like a totally political tool to grossly overrepresent this small contingent of people who are generally associated with oil and gas although you know staying away from that agenda here um, yeah Nigel
3: so I really think it's important for us to also meet people where there are where they are and so instead of working from you know this knowledge deficit point where oh they just don't know enough or they just don't have all the facts right well like how about instead you know how about we start having conversations about what they don't know what they do want to know because i'm sure your mom is curious at least about some aspect of climate change and so you don't have to debate you know what the media is portraying you don't have to debate the amount of scientists that have consensus on you know how much of climate change is contributable to humans but I would think what you can have is a conversation on okay, so you know, what are your questions about climate change? You know, what aspects of it are you curious about? And I, it can go from there.
0: Yeah, what I would say to your mom is, I'm sorry, it's really hard to find the credibility of information. There is so much information online and in all this media on TV and on, you know, books and everywhere, and there's just like so much information and even i if i'm surfing online i like search a question related to climate change like i have to i have to like read up on the opinion pieces on any source before i trust it because there's so much twisting of information so i would say like i'm really sorry it's so hard to get reliable data or any kind of information so I would say like you should talk to a climate scientist but of course like not everybody has access to climate scientists and mostly like what I want to do when I go home for Thanksgiving is like eat the food you know and you know I (laughs) like talking about this to an extent but it's really hard and I don't really have an answer there.
2: Well, luckily, we have two climate scientists with us <laughs> today. So we're we're helping to rebalance that uh, spreadsheet. But I, I really like the point you made about meeting people where they're at and like, asking them questions instead of coming at them with information that they may not want. Um, that's a really good point about how to have a more productive conversation with people who may not be like on your side from the get-go, but being willing to hear them and then them being able to hear you when you're talking about the things that they want to hear. Yeah. Um,
0: so, so there's another issue in, in climate change communication where people are like oh there's been like all of the snow so global warming isn't happening and there's just this really unappreciated aspect i mean we've now switched terminology to say climate change because it is it's a complete transition of a system and it, it's not a, like a linear trend towards warming although on average, that's what it is, but there, But this this variability is so underappreciated, and so the same goes with sea level. Um, if we say like, okay, we're taking you know, a certain amount of gigatons of ice off Antarctica, like all of that's melting, going into the ocean. So you have this this transition of mass from an ice sheet into the ocean, and then I think most people would be like, oh, okay, like sea level is going to rise everywhere by like that amount divided over the area of the ocean. But that is like absolutely not what happens. In some places, sea level actually falls because sea level, so so sea level is not a bathtub is like my bottom line here. Um, what happens in like the areas around Antarctica, for example, if you um, take mass off of that continent and you put it in the oceans, all of a sudden you're not loading the ground underneath Antarctica as much. And so that the ground actually rises on time scales that are relevant. Um, and so you have a relative sea level fall around Antarctica. So what I'm saying is, if you melt ice from Antarctica, sea level falls around Antarctica, which is completely non-intuitive. And mm-hmm. so, and that effect can 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 that effect influences the entire southern hemisphere. Similarly, with Greenland, Greenland loses mass, the entire northern hemisphere is affected by this like ground movement. So that's one um, non-intuitive part of sea level. And the other one is. Um, the gravitational effect, which I think this is like my favorite thing to talk about because it doesn't, it's not like scientifically polarized and I just think it's really interesting. So you know how gravity works where you have a big mass, a little mass is attracted to a big mass and we think about um, on Earth as gravity being like if you, Like jump, you're gonna be pulled back to the center of the earth because the earth has this huge mass. But the same thing actually works laterally. So if you have like a big mountain that you're standing next to, you're like kind of a teeny bit, a little bit attracted to that mountain, like sideways because that mountain has mass. And so these ice sheets on like opposite sides of the the earth have a lot of mass. And so if you take away some of that mass, you're actually losing the gravitational attraction of that ice sheet to sea level. So right now, sea level is way higher, um, I would say ob- objectively, but anyway, let's just go with that. Sea level is way higher objectively by ice sheets than it is away from ice sheets because the ice sheets are actually pulling sea le- the, like, the ocean water towards them gravitationally. So you also lose sea level when you melt um, ice off of Antarctica for example, not only are you rising the land and causing a relative sea level drop, you're also losing that gravitational attraction of sea level to the continent. So there are all of these complex um, ways that sea level is like not a bathtub, and so when we're trying to predict sea level, we have to not only use these ice sheet models to predict how much like, air temperature, warming air temperature and ocean temperatures are gonna melt the ice, but then we have to figure out where that mass is gonna go. And so it becomes this really complicated problem um, and really critical one, right? So people on on global coastlines want like a 30 year prediction of sea level rise. And so the scientists are back there like fiercely trying to figure out like how the system is evolving. Um, But it's a really interesting problem too.
2: That was that's really interesting when you talk about um, the way that the ground reacts, the the ice being taken away. That's something that we're even experiencing in New England still from the last glacial period, right? Like ten thousand years ago, the glacier melted, and that's why like the coastline of Maine is really rocky, is because it's still bouncing back from that. um, Yeah, you can just look on a map
0: of like land movement, and you can see that response. So so land movement is still moving up where it was covered by ice during the last glacial maximum.
2: Um, so, Ruthie, do you want to talk about how you ended up in uh, in this field of research?
0: <laughs> sure. So I was an undergrad, and I didn't know what I – well, shoot, I still don't know what I want to do. But when I was an undergrad, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, I was interested in earth science. Well, originally I was an engineer, and then I was like, I don't want to sit at a desk and, like, look, you know, sign off on things all day. So so I um, also added earth science, and I ended up doing research with this professor Um doing sort of Antarctic research and near my graduation time I was like I don't know what I want to do and I was kind of chatting with him about it and he said oh we have like a trip to Antarctica planned you want to come and I was like heck yes sign me up <laughs> and so then he was oh yeah that's great well you know if you're going to do this research for this trip like why don't you do your master's and I said all right sounds good <laughs> so I did that and then I was like wow I love Antarctica this is addicting like I want to go back um, and then my current advisor came and gave a talk at um, Rice in Houston, and oh, that sounds really interesting. And then I was just chatting with him, and I was oh, maybe I could do my PhD. So like, oh, you're looking for students? And then I didn't apply anywhere else, and <laughs> I ended up here. I mean, it's been, yeah.
2: So it was, sorry.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was just gonna ask, um, when you went to Antarctica, what, what about Antarctica was it? Was it the plane ride? Because I hear scientists love
0: plane well, it's actually kind of cool for all my, like, plane nerds out there because we got to ride in, like, a military plane. It was a C-130 with troop seating, and so you, like, you feel pretty special, right? You can look out the little windows. Fun
1: fact, that's only fun the first time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I found that out the, the second time. The fifth time you're on a military
1: plane, you're <laughs> yeah. like, this isn't fun. There's no air conditioning. Like, where are my earplugs? Spotify doesn't work on this thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, yeah.
3: So it sounds like your planes got more sophisticated while Mm -hmm. my planes (laughs) became less sophisticated, (laughs) so happy for you.
2: Okay, I think we're ready to move on to the last part of our show, which is going to be a little game that I've come up with called GTA... Not Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, that's a great game, but that's not... I didn't invent that, actually. Um, No, it's guess the acronym, because in the sciences, we love to use acronyms, and there's a reason. It's because we talk about certain topics a lot, and we have kind of a common language with the people who are experts in those topics, and it makes it easier and faster to talk about them. But it can kind of leave science feeling inaccessible. So I've compiled a list of some kind of climate change related acronyms and so what we're gonna do is (laughs) we're gonna have taylor who is our non-scientist co-host uh guess what these acronyms are and then we're gonna see if ruthie or nigel can step in and help him (laughs) when we uh when we uh yeah get there
1: i think i've got an advantage here because i am in the army Mm -hmm. yeah you might you might actually know a lot of these i don't know
2: i'm really curious actually i mean i'm curious in general like what acronyms the general audience might know or, or not know but I kind of have a spread here. So we'll start with IPCC.
1: Oh, that's my favorite kind of beer. That's (laughs) Indian pale cut from the corner of what was the last letter?
2: You got It's IPCC. Got it. There's two C's. Cut from the corner. Does anybody want to jump in? You guys know what it is? It's the uh, intergovernmental.
3: uh, panel on
2: climate, climate change. change yeah so that's a that's a worldwide organization kind of of scientists who get together how many years do you guys know every so
0: three
3: every three four? years they
2: make a big report about the, sti- the state of actually climate authoring change science the
0: sea level section which means that i do not ever see him but it's <laughs> also very exciting
2: very exciting because it's really that's like the that's the universal source of that is the this is source. what's happening yep. with climate yeah. Yeah. science
0: yep. globally
3: it also shows the collaborative spirit of scientists, not just from the United States, but you know, f- from across different nations, how we're like pulling all these resources together. Yeah, to, like, although we this. might
0: not be funding the I- the U.S. might pull their support of the IPCC um, for the next cycle, which means that it would not be able to continue. So we would have no like gold standard source on climate change information. Oh, anymore.
2: Wow. Okay, our next acronym GCM.
1: GCM. <laughs> um, golden chassis of merwin merwin of course is a wizard and that's his golden chassis
2: and that relates to climate change (laughs) because
1: Because it's a story about how his golden chassis (laughs) is he distributes greenhouse gases that's how you get it's a children's book that describes how how climate change climate system
0: is certainly magical yeah
1: exactly
2: (laughs) does anybody else want to jump in do you guys know what gcm's
0: are Global yeah. climate model. Yep.
3: I was close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Question to FEMA, do they also call them circulation models as well?
0: For G C M oh global circulation? Um, I don't know. I've only heard global climate models. I
3: saw
2: online general circulation model also. Oh. So it's kind of two relevant climate change types of models. But yeah, I th- this game was a little bit inspired by a talk that was given by somebody a couple of years ago from uh, the Northeast Climate Science Center, actually, in our department. and. Uh, the title of the talk was GCMs of Ms. 19 and 23, um, MIS. Mm-hmm. And he, he started his <laughs> talk, and he's like, well, it's pretty obvious from the title what I did. <laughs> and he was completely sincere. Wait, are we
0: going to have Taylor guess the MISs? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, okay. I guess we'll move on to our next, uh, our next acronym, which is MIS.
1: MIS. The Mission Impossible series. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> actually, I think that's accurate, but not the one that I was going for. Anybody want to step in?
3: I actually don't know this one.
2: Ooh.
0: Marine isotope stage.
2: Marine isotope stage. So this is one a little bit deeper into paleoclimate stuff. So this is um, basically, so they study the isotopes um, from the water of the ocean going back in time, right? And I guess I should say what an isotope is.
0: Maybe we should just skip this. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a lot
3: of an, an is important distinction that we probably didn't speak about early. But you know, Ruthie is focusing on more of a paleoclimatological focus. Paleoclimatological. Oh, you know what I'm trying to say. The history of the climate. The history of climate. Yeah. And I'm much more focused, you know, here on the current.
2: Yeah. And so one way that we understand the history of the climate is using isotopes, which is basically. Do you know what an isotope is, Taylor? I'm curious.
1: I am familiar with the term isotope, but mostly in regards to nuclear issues. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I assume it's like part of a molecule.
2: Yeah. So it has to do with like an element. So basically, like let's take a common element, oxygen. And so I forget what the actually the typical weight of oxygen is. 16? Sixteen. Yeah. So every element on the periodic table basically has a weight that it's like standard weight. So it's it's made up of protons and neutrons, and that's what defines it as that element. So oxygen usually weighs 16. So we say that it has an atomic mass of 16. But once in a while, you'll have an an oxygen that has one extra neutron. So the number of protons determines that it's oxygen, but you get an extra neutron, and suddenly it weighs a little bit more. Or sometimes you'll lose a neutron, and it'll weigh a little bit less. And so those variations in the weight of oxygen are called isotopes.
1: Gotcha. And so
2: that's important because, so like when you have a hotter climate, Lighter oxygen is going to come out of the water preferentially because it's just a tiny bit lighter, so it'll, it'll behave a little bit differently. So, you can learn a lot about the climate from like just studying isotopes buried under the ocean, or yeah. So, anyway, this is a really deep one. Maybe well, it's I should not No, but I think one.
0: that's a really important point to make because I'm talking about like 14 million years ago. Like, how do we know what the ice sheets and sea level was 14 million years ago? Or, like, how do we know that sea level is like rising compared to previous? Um, times in our history and I think that this is like, this is the foundation of paleoclimate basically is these, this oxygen isotope record. Um, because what happens is, so when you have lighter oxygen molecules and the, the hydrologic cycle happens when you like evaporate water from the oceans and then it gets carried and it rains on land and then the like river systems route that back into an ocean, it's a cycle, right? But if you have ice sheets growing and you rain on an ice sheet, that water is just gonna stay on the ice sheet. And so what happens is you preferentially evaporate lighter oxygen molecules, and then you bring them over, and you rain them on the ice sheet, and they just stay there. And then you evaporate more light oxygens, and you move them to ice sheets. So eventually, the ice sheets are full of really, really what we call isotopically light oxygen molecules, and the oceans are full of really, really isotopically heavy molecules. So if you... Are measuring like little organisms at the bottom of the ocean that are recording the isotopic concentration of the water in their shells, and you measure like there's a whole bunch of heavy uh, oxygen isotopes during this time period, then you infer from that that there's a lot of ice sheets that are like basically um, like securing all of this light oxygen isotopes on land, and so what we do is we can like take really deep ocean cores and we see this like all these wiggles. Of of oxygen isotope ratios, and we say, okay, we are interpreting this as like sea level. Like this is a proxy for sea level, and this is a proxy for ice sheet um, ice sheet growth and and retreat.
2: So coming back to our acronym, <laughs> just to make sure we focus on the acronyms here. No, so marine isotope stages is this kind of like consensus of scientists saying going back in time in time periods, and saying like the isotopes are mostly this way at this time and and they have just like a number system so like marine isotope stage 19 is like a set time interval in history basically that climate scientists use to talk about how things have changed i
0: don't know what happened then though (laughs)
2: <laughs> you don't know the time I know period of, specifically I'm MIS19 mis know. 19 yeah. <laughs> no, i do not think that's
1: the one where Tom Cruise is so old <laughs> 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 He's just climbing with his oxygen tank
2: Okay GHG
1: GHG Global heat guesstimations
0: which is what these liberals have been making for decades
2: that was a really good guess (laughs) thank you but not quite there (laughs) Ruthie you want to jump in? greenhouse (laughs) gases okay I have just one more okay our last one is is actually a really tough one E-N-S-O
1: E-N-S-O alright Environmental neuroscience systems of operation. <laughs> I would
2: like to know what that would involve. Environmental neurosystems. I almost like am imagining like the brain of the planet, yeah, like yeah, changing yeah. everything. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. The no. brain of the planet being the uh, I- isotopes in Antarctica. Oh, yeah. yeah
0: like that. Antarctica is the brain of the planet. I like that. (laughs) I can get behind that. (laughs) You go into that
1: hat and you see the brain.
0: Totes.
2: Okay, (laughs) well, it's wrong. (laughs) 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 You are not right. That's not what it is. Does anybody know?
0: El Nino seasonal oscillation? Southern oscillation? Southern oscillation? oscillation.
2: El Nino Southern oscillation. Can you explain that? Oh, gosh. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) No, a little bit I could, but anybody?
3: anybody If this was who wants to be a millionaire, I don't think we'd be walking out with Mm. any cash right now. We don't
2: have any... ocean scientists here, actually, Yeah, right? but I was about
1: to say, like, you guys have the best lifelines. Like, if it was a science question, you <laughs> yeah. were like, I'm going to call, I don't know, my advisor or <laughs> any of my scientist friends. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So El Nino Southern Oscillation is, like, the way that the the ocean temperatures change predictably, kind of, and we, I feel like most people have heard of El Nino. Sort of. Predictably. And, like, sort of, <laughs> cyclically, how about yeah, that? So not, yeah. not necessarily predictably, but yeah. cyclically. We have El Nino and La Nina. That's our, why
0: sometimes it's anomalously hot. And there's like a lot of precipitation. And then the talking heads are like, oh, it's an El Nino season, as if that explains all of our climate patterns. <laughs> which is
2: like when the Pacific Ocean is warmer, right? And the warm air comes in. I don't remember which <laughs> one is which. Because <laughs> there's an
0: opposite, where there's El Nino and there's La Nina. And I don't remember which is which. Mm.
3: But you bring up a really important point where like we have this network uh, of scientists that we can call and rely yeah. on. Like, I work on climate change issues, but I am not an actual person who studies climate but we do have other scientists that we regularly engage with that do have these answers. So an important part of our work is making sure we do reach out and we're forming these deep connections with our other scientists because it, they, they are ultimately informing our work.
2: That's a really good point. That's the entire process of science, really. That's the entire process. Is talking to people. No, okay, not just that. (laughs) What have I been doing this this entire time? Well, that's a great way to end a radio show. Like like, Talking is really the most important thing.
0: This has
1: (laughs) been science.
2: (laughs) This has been the pinnacle of science. Um, Okay, well, that's that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you, Ruthie and Nigel and Taylor. Uh, Cool. Okay, well, thank you, you guys. Thanks, Laura. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura, hosted by yours truly, Laura Faderuso, with guests Nigel Golden and Ruthie Halberstadt from the Northeast Climate Science Center and co-host Taylor Ortiz. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst and stay tuned for WMUA news coming right up.